Are you looking for a good book? Then let's talk. Books and Authors is the book show on Futures Television. We bring you the best authors on a variety of genres. There are so many great books out there, so where do we start? Leave the digging for us. You can watch Books and Authors every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific. Hello and welcome to Books and Authors, the book show on Futures Television and on Radio Futures. I am Ron Gayoso, your host. Today, we're talking about programming the future, politics, resistance, and utopia in contemporary speculative TV by Professor Cheryl Vint and Professor Jonathan Alexander. First and foremost, thank you so very much for your being here with me and my guests today. I know your time is very important, and I'm the guy who makes sure it is invested wisely. Remember, if you're watching this show via Futures Television, the home of the future on television, or listening to the show via Radio Futures, the wave of the future on radio, you too can be part of the conversation. This show airs on television every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific. And this show is broadcast via Radio Futures daily, also at 2 p.m. Pacific. If you're not watching us live, please join us in our YouTube channel, and that is IMCI Magazine, where we continue to chat about the topic of the day. So let me say a few words about our guests. Dr. Cheryl Vint is Professor of Media and Culture Studies and of English at University of California, Riverside. Her books include Science Fiction, A Guide for the Perplexed, and Biopolitical Futures in 21st Century Speculative Fiction. She is an editor of Science Fiction Studies and the recipient of the Science Fiction Research Association's Lifetime Achievement Award. Dr. Janet Alexander is Chancellor's Professor of English and Informatics at the University of California, Irvine. His books include Writing Youth, Young Adult Fiction as Literacy Sponsorship, and the Crypt Trilogy of Critical Memoirs. He's the YA editor and a frequent contributor to the Los Angeles Review of Books. So without further ado, let's welcome both to the show. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, thank, thanks so much for having us. Thank you so very much for being here. And you know, today we're talking about programming the future. So folks, this is a view or several views of the future uh, that exists in pop culture and in television. So today we're gonna dig a little bit deeper in terms of what and why, and what kinds of views are in there and why are those views in there? Uh, do we spouse the views? Do we not spouse the views? Are they being force fed upon us? Watch the story. So I wanna start from the beginning. So how did the two of you come up with the idea to write Programming the Future? What ignited the conversation? Thank you for that question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna immediately pitch it to, to Cheryl, uh, who is the real global expert on science fiction television. <laughs> but, but it began really, from my perspective, in a mutual love of science fiction and of science fiction media. And Cheryl and I have been friends for, for some time and colleagues in the University of California system. And we would just get together and start watching television together to kind of catch up on some of our favorite shows. And we realized we were starting to see some interesting trends and themes across multiple shows we were interested in. And so as, as academics who have turned their passions and hobbies into a career, we inevitably decided that we needed to write about some of the things we were seeing. At least that's how it happened for me. Cheryl, does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think for me, the real heart of the book was Mr. Robot, which uh, our cover alludes to and uh, is the sort of culminating chapter. And so for me, it was just an extraordinary show that really brought into the popular culture space um, trends of uh, structural dispossession through economic accumulation that I was studying in other parts of my academic work. And so I got very excited about the sort of public pedagogy work that I saw the show doing around questions of economic dispossession. And then Jonathan and I were talking about this and, and there were some other series we'd both been watching. We started chatting about them and got interested particularly in sort of um, ways in which the fragmentation of um, US um, political culture, which I think no one denies that this is the state of the sort of US political system today, but that it's sort of presaged by these shows that were airing um, 10 or 12 years ago that we see 
um, the sort of anticipation of some of that fragmentation. And I got quite interested in tracing out those trends as well. And then it's always delightful to do work in, collaboratively. There's often enough, not enough space for that in academe, but it's really through conversation that our ideas are enriched and improved. So it was just like really wonderful to have a project with a collaborator. It is. I want to pick up real quick on that notion of public pedagogy that Cheryl mentioned, because that was something that had long interested me as a rhetorician of popular culture, somebody who's written uh, about various popular culture genres. I'm really interested in how people can use these genres, how they use a range of genres, uh, including science fiction, but also uh, young adult fiction, which I've spent a lot of time writing about and how they understand them as ways to, to think about their world, to think about their world critically and to potentially change it. So I was, I was like Cheryl, delighted to be able to find a project that allowed us to think uh, both from a critical, but also from a, this public pedagogical angle that we've been talking about. Wonderful. So in the book, you explain the sci-fi pieces you analyze are really tools to help us conceive, imagine, or hope for the future. But they also have the potential to shape how viewers think and feel about contemporary social, political, and economic problems. How does that work? Go, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the problem with collaboration. It's, it's the, the only issue is like, who, who, who gets to go first? So I, I, I can very briefly say um, that one of the things that we find really interesting or about science fiction television, especially since 9-11, the various shows that have emerged, uh, and also long-term series like the Star Trek series, which uh, existed long before 9-11 and then have continued on, is that they're often incredibly sensitive to the times in which they're being made and produced and aired. Uh, or streamed. So these shows will often pick up on and reflect some of the dominant uh, issues, okay, cultural and political problems that people are encountering. And so we noticed in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, for instance, that several very popular shows, including both Star Trek and also the Battlestar Galactica reboot, were really trying to address issues of terror, terrorism, uh, but also more vexing issues. Well, terrorism is pretty vexing, but also an issue such as torture and what is the what is the role or use of torture in trying to mitigate against future terror attacks. So despite the fact that these are shows set in the future, they're they're very cognizant of contemporary issues, issues of the moment. And so we began thinking about how all of those shows since 9-11 we're not only picking up on and being very sensitive to issues, social, cultural, political issues, economic issues at the moment, but we're increasingly thematizing, as Cheryl was saying earlier, the interconnection of political economy uh, and really the, the fragmentation of democracy. So we went from immediate post 9-11 stories about terrorism and torture to increasingly stories in these science fiction shows about uh, economic deterioration, economic precarity, uh, neoliberal economics, and the interrelated fragmentation of democratic uh, polity. So it's that was really what was intriguing, at least to, to us, is like how do these shows frame those, those issues, those problems, those ideas, and kind of set them on the table for a wider discussion. Yeah, so one of the things that kind of, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this. So here in Arizona, right, so we had Senator John McCain, who was very outspoken against torture. But when you look at some of those sci-fi movies, right, um, they use torture as a solution. So it, it becomes somewhat acceptable. So it's a view of the future where, you know, uh, torture is a valid tool. And that's kind of disturbing when I look at you know, those kinds of movies where they try to impose certain views. So our contemporary views are projected into the future and those views are considered, quote, solutions to the problem, isn't that? I mean, I think that this is one of the reasons why television in particular as a medium interested us, or at least for me, this is part of um, what's really foundational to this project because similar themes we could find in print science fiction and science fiction film. Um, and this question of whether certain kinds of points of view or perspectives get normalized is, is part mm -hmm. of something that I think 
television is a medium that's very intimate. It's often daily or weekly. We're revisiting certain characters or scenarios. It's in our homes, um, surrounded by our kind of families and other kind of quotidian domestic things that we view these stories. And so I think that there's a sense that there's a kind of intimacy or connection or identification with television characters that can often last, you know, for through seasons up, uh, you know, a decade or more for some of these shows for something like the Star Trek universe. I mean, basically my entire life has been taking place within um, uh, popular culture, having some framing through Star Trek as a narrative space. I don't know that I'd necessarily say it presents torture as a solution, because I think another mm -hmm. thing that's that's useful or valuable about science fiction um, storytelling is because it requires casts of characters. And particularly the series we focus on really are always about multi-cast frameworks, right? There's not really a protagonist of most of these shows. And so they do put multiple perspectives into conflict and, and dialogue. And so certainly, yes, there are characters um, who regard torture as a solution, but there's others that are critiquing that even mm -hmm. within the space of the narrative. And so that's sort of part of what we mean by this question of public pedagogy, right? That the dialogue itself is staged within the show. Uh, and and one final point I'd say about that, um, this is not in reference to a science fiction television show, but in television in general, um, a show like 24, um, which had torture like at the heart of what drove its narrative. Um, if you watch it across all its seasons, it sort of ends up questioning its own premises by the end. And so when you stay with a character through that long journey, um, the shifting public conversation around torture and its legitimacy plays out in the sort of shifting things that happen to that particular character. And so I think the shows that we're interested in are doing similar kind of things. They're putting characters into these intense situations and then debating the the ethics of how one responds in those kinds of extreme situations. Okay, so Dr. Vint, I, I want to pick you on you a little bit. So uh, <laughs> we use those sci-fi exercises to hope for the future, and I stress the term hope. But how can we hope for the future if most representations of women in the future portray women in secondary roles, not as heroes, or seek to perpetuate a vision of women as sexual objects? How can we hope when we see that? Well, a, I think, again, I would contest that today most science fiction presents women in, in that kind of light. But certainly there is um, the history of science fiction has has been dominated by male perspectives, has been dominated by white colonial perspectives. But running alongside that has always been um, women and writers of color who are contesting those frameworks who are taking exactly the same kinds of um, figurations that suggest a kind of naturalness or inevitability to um, heteronormative and patriarchal um, structures of social of society and turning them on their head, writing back to them. Um, science fiction was a huge tool for the second wave feminist movement. We're seeing now even, even something as sort of fully commercial as the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, is foregrounding female protagonists. Um, some of the most sort of famous popular culture icons across all of popular culture, um, uh, like Sarah Connor from the Terminator series or Ellen Ripley from the Alien series, they come out of science fiction. And, in, and I think that's in part because, well, science fiction always reflects the time that, that it's created. Uh, whatever it sort of says about the future, it's not really predicting the future, right? It's talking about the present moment um, through the method by which it imagines the future. But it is sort of premised on this idea that the future can be different than the present. And so there's always that sort of buried seed of um, what we have is not necessarily what we're destined to have or what we inevitably have to have. Let me give you a quick example. Just yesterday, I showed my students uh, beginning a unit on the work of Octavia Butler, the African-American uh, science fiction writer. And one of the first things I showed them was a picture of Nichelle Nichols, the actress who played Lieutenant Uhura on the Star Trek series and in numerous Star Trek films. And here was in the late 60s, uh, a black actress playing uh, a black woman in a leadership role on the bridge of a, of, of a starship. And 
young Octavia Butler watching the series in the late 60s in Pasadena, California, was absolutely inspired to, to undertake her own writing of science fiction and the creation of, of diverse characters uh, into the future. Now, are, does that mean that racism and sexism are cured in science fiction? Obviously not. Your, your, your question comes from a very valid point of critique. And as Cheryl was saying, a lot of science fiction will still have baked into it many of the sexist, racist, and homophobic assumptions and predispositions of our culture. But just as Cheryl was saying, the possibility to think and imagine a world that's different seems to be one of the great generic capacities, when I say generic, genre capacities of science fiction to open up a place for hope that things could in fact be different. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Alexander, we'll turn to you with a different kind of question. So again, we use sci-fi to help us, again, hope for the future, but the futures described in the pop culture are not inclusive. You know, there's virtually no future view for the LGBTQ community in the future. Uh, so what happened? Why is such a numerous community mostly written off from the envisioned futures? It's a wonderful question. And all I can say to that is, uh, you know, in... in, in <laughs> For whatever set of complicated sociopolitical and cultural reasons, uh, in, in, inclusion clearly takes time. <laughs> it's, it's not something which can happen, which is not something that's happening overnight. With that said, you know, again, I can take Star Trek as a sort of paradigmatic example here. Uh, we know that Gene Roddenberry, the creator of the Star Trek universe, very much from the get-go in the late 60s wanted to include queer characters. It took some time, a few decades, before that actually began to happen with any glimpse of possibility. But now in the most recent Star Trek uh, franchises, including Picard, Strange New Worlds and Discovery, there are queer characters everywhere. It is in fact a, a sort of interesting, I won't call it exactly a saturation of the LGBT community, but the series is, is finally making good on its now six decade promise to create not only a sort of more inclusive set of characterizations for its for its characters, but to actually take seriously what would a queer life look like in the far future? What would a non-binary life look like into the future? And so I so, so I'm maybe a little bit more hopeful than uh, than your than your your question uh, uh, assumes. With that said, one of the things that Cheryl and I noticed as we were working on our book is that there, there seemed to us many more possibilities for the inclusion of not just LGBT characters, but for queer ways of thinking about um, institutions and uh, structures such as the family. So one of the things that we trace a lot in our book is how even when LGBT characters are not necessarily identified, we do have a number of characters who seem to be making what we might call queer choices for organizing their family lives differently. Uh, and we think that's that's worth noting as well, because this is not, this should not be just a question of including different kinds of characters, but a queer approach would be really thinking deeply, thinking creatively and thinking radically about the structures through which we organize our lives and how those might need to change or be different in order for more people to live survivable lives. We're gonna to get to that family question in just a moment. <laughs> and, and if I could just add quickly on the question sure. of um, LGBTQ um, representation, at least in terms of the examples we discuss in this book, a second kind of factor is the television industry, right? Mm -hmm. Which also, because of its long-term reliance on advertisers and a sense within the advertising industry that certain um, demographics could not be alienated, it's been much more difficult to, to um, have uh, more queer representation within SF television than within print SF. And so even before we had a language for things like trans um, and, and other kinds of configurations of, of queer gender that go beyond um, simply a kind of gay and lesbian representation, there's many examples of science fiction from the 50s, from the 60s, from the 70s. Um, uh, Samuel Delaney as, as an openly queer writer who is one of the most important figures in the field um, that really challenged the questions of heteronormativity and binary gender for long before this would show up in a medium like television. Good. 
Well, you also mentioned some versions of the future seem to cultivate this retrograde and nostalgic versions of the past, right? Yeah. It's the good old days. Uh, but how could that vision be desirable, say, if the reality was a view of the world before Selma or before Stonewall? Well, I mean, I think the, the issue is desirable to whom, right? Mm -hmm. um, exactly. And much as we are um, fans of the potentiality of speculative fiction and we have texts that we celebrate, um, certainly it's a, it's a representational practice open to all kinds of social imaginaries. And there's certainly um, also a wealth of examples that I, I will not sort of choose to name so as to give them further airspace. Um, yeah, I don't want to give them more airspace, but certainly um, much as there's much to celebrate about the science fiction community and the genre's history, um, there's also, um, you know, embarrassing, terrible, shockingly recent examples of um, attempts to define the both the genre and the future in very exclusionary terms so that's the sort of one of the questions we really want to foreground is is that the imagination itself is a social activity right and so um we're certainly by no means claiming that science fiction is always about the best and the progressive future it's it's a technique um and you can use it yeah. to a range of ends imagine yeah yeah well, in the book, well, we quoted Margaret Thatcher, right? So there is no such a thing as society. Yeah. And you added only individuals and families oriented by market and morals. So what happened to the view of the collective or uh, the goal to achieve welfare? Was it replaced by a view where corporate interests matter more than people? What matters here? I think you sort of diagnosed one of the things that we see as potentially well, not as just potentially, it's very problematic about, you know, contemporary neoliberalized uh, democratic capitalist cultures. And one of the things that is often surprising within many of the television shows that we analyze is an attempt to recover some kind of collectivist notion or idea. It's not always uniform and it's certainly not ubiquitous, but there are any number of shows that, uh, such as The Expanse, for instance, which uh, imagines different pockets of collectivity, different ways of thinking about political organization and structures that are designed to counter uh, what seem to be otherwise very neoliberalized uh, consumer capitalist driven forms of governance. And we think that's kind of interesting. Um, what's, the Expanse, for instance, also has a sort of a large set of storylines around the issue of anarchy and uh, anarchism, which I find really particularly intriguing. Uh, this is this is interesting to see these kinds of political discourses coming back. Uh, and I think in part they come back because uh, not just the writers, but I think the viewers want some different, they want a sense of alternative, some different ways of conceptualizing how we might organize social political and economic relations in ways that might be more satisfying uh, for a greater number of people. Cheryl, does, does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd add the, the question kind of really gets at the heart of what mobilizes this book, right? Is that, that from the 1980s onward, there's a restructuring of popular common sense on the part of um, the political class to suggest that there's no alternative but market ways of organizing one's life and one's society um, such that you get people to forget that there's other alternatives available and that, um, you know, especially under conditions of austerity, it's very easy to sort of um, put people in such difficult situations and create such fear about their futures that they end up wanting to cling to the immediate nuclear family doing whatever we have to do to survive these forces of austerity and it's a it's a narrowing down of the imagination that is is in the service of um, thatchers and others attempts to convince people that all they have to care about is their own family and that there's no such thing as society and so i think we wanted to suggest that these um, alternative versions of family in the science fiction shows, um, although we also talk about some shows that we think like reinforce this narrow version of family, right? It's all about who's in the community and who is not, which re reproduces that neoliberal logic. 
Um, but the shows we want to celebrate are the ones that are in people's homes, getting them to identify with these characters and reminding them, no, actually there is society and you want to be part of society and, and it's a valuable thing that you're being denied by this political ideology. Actually, I, I want to stay on that definition a little longer. So it appears the view you described also has a very narrow definition of family, not one that reinforces the status quo of things, the patriarchy, and some clearly defined gender, race, and orientation roles. Mm -hmm. How can this narrative possibly be labeled as desirable or something I want to watch on television? So if I understand your question correctly, I don't know that I would identify that as desirable. Exactly. <laughs> as, a, as a sort of desirable kind of future. It's been fed to us via television, right? It, well, yeah, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I think what's so interesting about, about television, as Cheryl was arguing earlier, is that it, it does have to often appeal to very different constituencies. And the, the number of people who no longer... Uh, thrill to the idea of the traditional family uh, or patriarchal uh, uh, identity, identification, the fact that there are more and more people who are asking for, clamoring for even alternative kinds of community, family identification suggests that producers and writers are more willing and able in, from their perspective to create those kinds of narratives. So what that often means is that in any given show, you're likely to have characters who seem to be espousing some rather traditional, even patriarchal values and other characters who are not. And so there's this range of interesting kinds of uh, possibilities that are being put into these shows designed you know, at a base level to appeal to different constituencies. But I might argue that their presence simultaneously in different in these shows opens up a space for, for critical thinking about well, what, what is desirable. And at the very least, how can different kinds of value sets or value positions start to navigate mutual relations? Uh, we only have one planet so far. So how do we actually figure out how to navigate uh, groups that have often very different values and very different senses of how to organize humanity. That might be one of the most interesting ways in which the shows are offering sort of a critical entree into a conversation about our current political, cultural climate. Yeah, I mean, to just really underline that, clearly um, both Jonathan and I have features that we find desirable and that we would strongly argue for. But our critical project in the book is really about suggesting that the debate about what is desirable is what is being staged That's in these shows. Yeah. And so not everything that we talk about um, aligns with what we personally would desire. And then not to get too sort of into the technical weeds, but I think it's also important, again, to think about television as a medium. And television is a medium that has undergone just like such a amazing transformation in the last um, decade that it's almost not recognizable as the same medium it was in the broadcast era, right? Like the fact that we are now on a TV show that will be airing on YouTube and not just sort of broadcast on PBS uh, at a certain time and that's it and you need to, you know, watch at the time it's on or you're never going to see it. Um, so some of the shows that in the sort of mass media era, when television, there's, you know, four channels and they have to have some kind of common denominator audience have different constraints than television in this niche kind of era. And so while we are much more personally interested in the shows that are coming in this sort of niche television era that speak to our own sensibilities, part of what we're sort of wanting to illuminate is what does it mean to have a mass medium show that is, is encouraging dialogue across communities? Because I do think part of the political problem that we're diagnosing is this sort of um, siloed or bubbled ways of thinking and um, something like popular culture that people have an affective investment in and maybe they, they see as just entertainment is one way to sort of push on the, the segregation of those media bubbles. Let's talk a little bit about television. And in the book, you stated television has increasingly become a niche medium of narrow casting. What do you mean by that? 
<laughs> Explain. So, yeah, and I guess I should be clear here that by narrow casting, what I mean is it is it speaks to an ever more specific um, market segmentation. I don't mean narrow in the sense of oh, like parochial or limited or or things like that. It's so it's really about a sort of industry way of thinking about um, again in the broadcast era. There's for a long period three big stations, um, then four when Fox um, enters, and then more into the 90s when you start getting specialized cable channels. So when it's just sort of ABC, NBC, and CBS. Um, speaking of the U.S. context here, I should also say there's different histories of the medium in different countries, which I won't give you a whole lecture on right now. Um, but sticking with you, have US, to come back. <laughs> come back. <laughs> I love to talk about television, so I'd be delighted to. But when you have just the sort of three big broadcast networks, and and there's there's trying to reach all of America, right? They're trying to compete, especially before recording and time shifting and things. It's people had to make choices. Am I watching NBC or am I watching CBS? And who's getting those primetime advertising eyeballs? And so that produced certain constraints on what shows could do because they're trying to reach this really wide audience composed of multiple age groups, multiple ethnic demographics, multiple sexualities, multiple ages. But in our sort of boutique era of streaming on demand, and ever more specific platforms that are targeted at, at narrower segments, you can have, uh, you can be financially successful with shows that speak to a much smaller demographic than it was possible. So that's what I mean by narrow casting. It's the economics of the industry have changed radically in ways that I actually think make television um, so much better now. But we're also at a sort of streaming wars crisis where the economics are no longer serving the industries that have sort of built the streaming era as they once did. And so I think we'll see some change in the future and what that will look like is unclear yet. But um, so-called peak TVs, we seem to be on the declining side of that peak. So I don't know what that's going to look like. But um, again, it's about the economics that underpin and drive the possibilities for narratives in this medium. The narrow, narrow casting that Cheryl is talking about, uh, I might also think of as a sort of curatorial opportunity. Uh, and in fact, I think of our book, Programming the Future, as a sort of curation and an archive of a particular moment in television, and particularly in streaming television, where we can bring together for discussion you know, nearly 15 years worth of televisual uh, experience uh, that that is dispersed over many, many different platforms, uh, but that we think nonetheless constitutes a, a really powerful set of conversations that the culture wants to have around uh, economics, difference, uh, democracy, et cetera. So, so there are both there. There's both narrowness in the in in the negative sense, but also I think, as Cheryl is saying, very much in the positive sense of the multiplication of conversations and of perspectives and viewpoints that we're starting to see. So one of the things that I thought interesting about your book is, of course, a collaboration, but it you bring this interdisciplinary studies perspective to the topic, which I think enriches the discussion. So uh, in the book, you argue uh, that when you combine queer and utopian studies in the same creative space, the result allows us to better explore humanity's deepest hopes and dreams. What do you mean by that? Oh, it's a great question. Thank you. It's, you know, I think one of the things that Cheryl and I have been thinking about as somebody like Cheryl, who's coming from a deep cultural studies background, you know, deep investment in popular culture and in kind of critical theoretical ways of understanding, in particular science fiction, speculative narrative and television, and then me coming from a background in, in rhetoric where I'm interested in how do texts circulate and what power and force do they have in, in the public, but also a queer background, a kind of LGBT studies and queer theoretical background. It's been so interesting over the last decade for us to see that so much of the, the theoretical force and drive that has fueled a lot of cultural studies uh, and kind of speculative narrative and thinking about speculative narrative in science fiction is also drawing from some of the same roots that have fueled some recent queer theoretical interventions. And so I'm thinking in particular of how uh, a queer theorist like Jose 
Esteban Munoz pulls on the work of um, Ernst Bloch, uh, so the early 20th, early mid 20th century Marxist utopian thinker, uh, who was very much invested in how cultural works and products can open up spaces for for thinking differently, for for even for utopian thinking. Um, Actual, uh, for for imagining different possibilities, and I think that that's that's beautifully lining up with so much of the work that that Cheryl and others in science fiction studies have been doing, who are drawing from some of the exact same kinds of streams, including Ernst Bloch, uh, this this thinker. So it's been great to see how those uh, originating theoretical strands might be brought even more explicitly into conversation across our subdisciplines so that we can explore how, how do these works actually function, even at the level of, a, level of genre, to open up spaces for us to think differently and to think with more sense of hopefulness and possibility. Okay, so um, I want to change subjects a little bit. So uh, throughout the book, I could see a lot of mention to basically what amounts to fear-mongering tactics. So lots of the sci-fi views are apocalyptical in nature, or they describe scary versions of the United States where we need to somehow purge society from undesirables, or we should be okay with a benevolent leader that will help us, quote, restore this glorious past. <laughs> so what extent do you believe those views of the future are some disguised efforts to push this neo-fascist view of the world? I mean, I think that's you, it's impossible to answer that question in the abstract because it's always mm -hmm. contingent on the particular text. But again, like it's a great question because it's precisely what we're interested in thinking through, right? Um, and so um, the the sort of way of thinking about dystopia, I mean, I guess fear-mongering would be one way. And certainly there's um, a conversation within utopian studies that would say, um, certain kinds of utopian or sorry, dystopian texts are anti-utopian in that they suggest like such a, an enclosed, um, overwhelming, impossible to escape dystopian future that they actually sort of repress one's capacity to believe that anything else is possible anyways. And so they, they produce a kind of um, capitulation or apathy. There's others who would argue that they sort of visiting them week to week gets us um, used to the idea that these are ideas that are sort of um, in the public space. They're not shocking ideas anymore. And so again, it's sort of a, a sort of soft uh, entry towards um, normalizing certain kinds of points of view. And I certainly think there are texts that do precisely that. But with in most of the science fiction texts that are a dystopian future, it's usually not sort of valorizing that future and that it's very often about people that are positioning themselves as the resistance to that future. Um, but even then one has to be careful because a very, I mean, we don't talk about this at all, but a very, very popular and influential text like Star Wars, for example, certainly imagines this dystopian empire of the future and positions viewers to be with the rebels who are, you know, fighting for justice against this empire but in ways that um, still center sort of whiteness, often center heteronormativity. And so simply being against the empire doesn't necessarily lead to a complex politics. And this is why um, it's the, the analysis, the conversation, the dialogue being promoted is sort of the object of interest for us, not necessarily one particular, um, like I don't think there's any text we think got it right, for example. Even my beloved Mr. Robot, there's things to critique about that. So, <laughs> but there's a way in which Cheryl, as you're talking, I'm I'm reminded that our method is very much indebted, I think, to what we might call a fan-based methodology. Because one of the things that I love about science fiction communities and fan communities in general is the passion with which fans will argue about and debate about their favorite shows. And so I'm not surprised, you know, I, I will identify myself as a fan. I'm not surprised that we're drawn to methodologies that actually point to how these shows open up spaces of conversation as opposed to providing blueprints, uh, because that's very much why fans appreciate the shows. They are opportunities to debate, to discuss. 
Yeah, I think in one of the aspects that I really enjoy about your book is you do several things. So help us hope about the future, right? Or hope mm -hmm. for a better future. And you help us think about the future in very many different ways, which is exactly what we should be doing. Uh, but one other aspect that I like about the book is you try to explain or warn us about this normalization of uh, retrograde or past ideas into the future. So let me be more specific. Mm -hmm. So, for example, and I've always been paying attention to all those kinds of efforts. Uh, when we go back to the past, our recent, our recent conflict and totalitarian regimes, right? You could clearly see the propaganda movies, but we could tell. Those are propaganda movies. But when you think about Sergei Eisenstein, mm -hmm. or when you think about Leni Riefenstahl, mm -hmm. those were very subtle. So they, they almost helped us think, oh, this is somewhat acceptable. And then you go downhill from there. They were not propaganda in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. They were just normalizing this extreme, or for us, extreme view of reality. But I think it's important that we pay attention to what exactly is being normalized, what is being presented. And I think you, your work helped us think of this very critically. And I applaud you for that. Yeah, and I appreciate the, the reference to, um, well, both Eisenstein, but I'm thinking particularly of, of Lenny Reifenstahl, because one of the things that I think we found really fascinating about the Man in the High Castle adaptation, for example, is that it well understands the sort of appeal of totalitarian aesthetics yeah. and that i i think it does quite effectively it makes jarring that how easily nazi aesthetics fit into a sense of celebrating um u.s patriotism um and that that juxtaposition um is jarring to viewers or i hope it's jarring to viewers certainly it was jarring to me and so i think that that is one way that the show draws attention to precisely what you're pointing to, which is that the aesthetics themselves are doing political work, um, irrespective of the content in certain kinds of ways. Absolutely. So just think, for instance, in that show of the Statue of Liberty draped with a Nazi swastika. Um, and that's, that is a, uh, it, a old school science fiction critic would call that, I think, a form of cognitive estrangement. It's like we're being estranged from uh, what we understand as a sort of normal uh, American patriotic symbol. Uh, but it's precisely that, even just at the level of that visual, which as Cheryl was saying, opens up the possibility for critical thought. It's like, how, what, what are the similarities here? And why do we find this jarring? And are, 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 are we sure we aren't already there in some ways? So, because this is a story, Man in the High Castle is a really interesting interesting case in point. I, I really enjoyed working on this show and, and, and writing about it, despite the fact that, as I think Cheryl will agree, it was never less than troubling and difficult uh, because the, the show so powerfully stages uh, a set of conversations about the relationship between democracy and fascism that we have been having for decades now. I mean, this was based on a, a novel originally written in 1962, I believe. And so this conversation has been happening for some time. And I think one of the delights of the project and one of the sobering dimensions of the project has been to recognize how even some of the most powerful, very contemporary television is continuing to forward conversations and deeply jarring conversations about problems that we've been having within democratic culture for some time. And if I could just add, um, and this ties a little bit to a question you asked earlier about gender as well, a show we don't discuss in the book, um, although we were asked multiple times to discuss it in the book, uh, is The Handmaid's Tale. And uh, we do, we have something we've written jointly about The Handmaid's Tale published elsewhere. But for me, um, there's lots that I value about that show. Um, but what I find troubling about it so much so that I, that I didn't really want to include it in this book actually is precisely the fact that, um, even as it's critiquing this totalitarian, um, state of gender essentialism in the future, um, it does so with such like beautiful cinematography and such carefully composed shots and sometimes like shots from above of colored handmaids and wives, almost as if it's like, 
um, you know, a, a studio era Hollywood musical and we're seeing like synchronized swimmers or something. And so there's a way for me that the 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 skill of the people making that show and the beauty that they bring to Gilead undermines their attempt to critique Gilead. And so that the show becomes about almost like a vicarious enjoyment of the spectacle of women's suffering and the spectacle of the grandeur of Gilead in a way that I find sort of um, troublingly, troublingly anti-feminist um, as compared to the narrative's attempts to assert a feminist um, theme to the show. So I, I recognize the skill of everyone making it, the skill of the performances, but that that mismatch between the aesthetics and the narrative, I, it makes it a very difficult show for me to watch. Yeah, so let, let's stay uh, on that topic for a moment. So when let's let's go back to Leni Riefenstahl and, and her work, which was amazing. And for even today, you can say amazing. Uh, but uh, it took until Susan Sontag, in the early 1970s, that from 1930 through 1973 or 74, when the essay was actually published, and to and she passed away denying her responsibility. I have no responsibility. I'm an artist, right? Mm. And Sontag claimed the opposite. She said, "No, you do. The artist has a responsibility over the work and whatever visions that are being uh, portrayed with the work, right? Especially knowing who commissioned." the work, right? So, uh, and I, I look at today, right, when I see those same kinds of views being presented as this romantic view of the past or a past that is certainly we want to put, put behind us. But when those things are fast forward into the future, right, and these people basically kind of wash their hands, and it's just a piece of art. It's mm -hmm. a movie. But actually, the movie carries a message, right, where they claim, oh, this is a, and let's use the word, the static word. This is a beautiful future, something you should aspire, right? So, but they claim no responsibility. It's just a movie. So, where where do we draw the line? Should we go back and say go back to the Sontag and say no? Indeed, you are responsible for what you put out. Well, yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was I was just going to say this is this is one of the reasons why I'm a rhetorician. Uh, I don't. Uh, and have never uh, really understood an artwork as sort of, uh, by artwork, I mean, you know, could be a television show, could be film, you know, could be painting. I've never understood them as completely sacrosanct. I've never understood them as just formal uh, experiences or uh, manifestations of just pure form, even if that's what an artist intended. Perhaps Leni Riefenstahl intended her films to be just works, formally beautiful works of art. Despite that, I think it's important, you know, Cheryl has reminded us several times about something like television as a medium, that the works are always produced within a particular historical context, within a particular context of production, but also within a context of reception and how people use those works and how they understand them. And that's what opens up for me a great deal of complexity because people can find, even in uh, retrograde works, uh, even in works that might have been intended to instantiate a uh, really retrograde or uh, particularly patriarchal or heteronormative or incredibly conservative kind of view of the world, people can even find within that opportunities to think differently, to, to open up spaces for other ways of understanding. And the reverse can happen as well. I think of what's happened recently, for instance, with Frank Herbert's Dune novels. Uh, the do novels, which are in a lot of ways about uh, questioning the rise, you know, deeply concerned about the rise of messiah figures and and uh, who, who become totalitarian dictators, and also books that have a strong environmental and ecological consciousness. And these are narratives that have often uh, recently been taken up by people on the far right uh, to to praise the emergence of uh, a messiah-like figure and and to look for uh, strong leaders and so so for me a rhetorical analysis allows us to look at all of these different kinds of narratives and not not have them tied to what a particular individual might have understood about their making but to see how the works get picking up, picked up and used in different contexts to do different kinds of political and cultural work. 
So that's that's really what is of interest to me and why I think contemporary science fiction television is so fascinating because it offers so many ways to get into really interesting conversations. Yeah, and I mean, my response is very similar that, that um, the, in a way, there is no line to be drawn because we're always drawing the line and that, that's line. precisely what the work of critique is about. I mean, my, my training comes more out of um, kind of materialist cultural studies and ideology rather than rhetoric and persuasion. But why it was interesting to do this work together is because there's so many um, overlaps in, in the two fields. And so, yeah, that's for me, it's always precisely what it's about is um, texts always have political effects, whether they're intended or not, whether they're conscious or not. And, and they're not necessarily static, that audiences in different contexts hit, pick them up and make different meanings from them, um, which is one of the reasons why we wanted some historical scope to the book, even though we're really predominantly interested in this question of sort of post 9-11 to, to the economic crisis. Um, the historical scope of, of how science fiction television had already been imagining politics that later texts um, are aware of this tradition and refer back to it or change it or react to it. Different audiences um, receive the meanings of texts in different ways based on their own context. So it's not that the question of drawing the line is not an important question. It's the question. It's right. just that there is no a line. Um, yeah. <laughs> not a single line anymore. So what, you know, growing up, what I remember is a couple of things, you know, your freedoms and where somebody else's freedoms start, you know, don't step on anybody else's toes and whatever people, you know, do behind the, the four hours of their confines is their problem, not yours. But nowadays we see this, what happened to, to that? You know, uh, now we see the extremists and either way, left or right, taking over. And when I look to Europe, like this resurgence of fascism, right? Mm -hmm. In, in Sweden, in Italy, uh, you know, this Italian prime minister came out and said, but, you know, Mussolini wasn't that bad. I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> so what kind of uh, uh, this generation of thinkers, what kind of sci-fi products will they put out? What should we, we be on the lookout for? Well, I mean, I think, again, the question is... Um, Yes, certainly. There's a lot of people saying like, oh, yeah, Mussolini, maybe he had some ideas or whatever. They're, they're, um, they're saying there's certainly going to be people, there's always going to be people who are going to be on the side of conservatism, authoritarianism, um, uh, homogeneity of culture, things like that. But they're always accompanied by people who are saying precisely the opposite. And, and science fiction is a tool to be used by both. Um, and so I don't know that, that you can sort of predict what this generation will say in, in science fiction because it'll be diverse like every generation yeah. is diverse. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I'd say, um, at least for me, and this sort of gets back to the core of the book around the economic crash and the kind of attempts to connect the crisis in democracy to its real material underpinnings in the financialization of the economy, the crash, austerity, uh, rising inequality. I think one of the reasons we are seeing a resurgence in more authoritarian ideas is because people do feel economically precarious and they feel economically precarious because they are economically precarious. But um, fascist ways of framing this um, anti-immigration ways of framing this, um, have a narrative to tell about the solutions to the problem, which is a false solution to the real conditions because they want to obscure the real conditions in economic inequality. And thus we've selected shows that, that we think help highlight these economic underpinnings to bring that back into the cultural conversation because that's a really important dimension of the crisis we're all living through right now. Absolutely. I, I think that it's not surprising to me at all that we have, that we're seeing a sort of res real resurgence or greater visibility of of fascist and, and pro-authoritarian kinds of thinking. Uh, our, our entire planet is in, a, is in a state of crisis. And so this creates um, 
it's going to create different kinds of responses and a, and a fear response of, of wanting that strong leader and to, and to move back into uh, a much more uh, confined and delimited sort of space of, of homogenization uh, feels secure, I think, probably to, to some people. And we see this in science fiction. I mean, it is absolutely a theme that gets played out in many of the narratives that we um, that we have been studying. And I think, as Cheryl's saying, though, the the great the great capacity of science fiction to speak to many diverse possibilities, and just at its heart, to be about opening up possibilities. Uh, the science fiction theorist Carl Friedman says that the important thing about science fiction is not just that it's set in a different time and place, but it's the difference that difference makes, which is what's really important. Just the fact that things could be different is something that can open up possibilities for thinking about our world in, in hopefully more equitable and just and sustainable forms. You know, in future studies, you know, one thing that I try to tell people is if you like what the future is starting to look like, how wonderful, work for it. If you don't like what the future is starting to look like, work harder to prevent. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you for your key takeaway and your message. So what are you hoping readers will learn from your book? It's, it's a learning tool. I mean, I think for me, the main thing I want people to take away from the book is um, a recognition of these um, economic underpinnings to the precarious conditions they find themselves in today. Because I think a better understanding of how it is that um, that austerity and, and poverty for many people is produced um, by the accumulation of wealth elsewhere, positions people to respond in less reactive ways to the real struggles they're facing. You know, so many of these shows um, give us characters who are facing apocalyptic, dystopian, you know, deeply traumatic changes in their lives, either because of that economic precarity or that kind of precarity, which is allegorized as alien invasion or, or, or something is happening that is putting these characters uh, that we invite into our, into our living rooms, right? I mean, we, 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 we watch them in the comfort of our homes. We're seeing these characters go through tremendous difficulties uh, and, and encounter uh, cataclysmic changes in their worlds. One thing that is consistent amongst many of them, not all of them, but of many of them, is we get to watch those characters not only cope with a rapidly changing world uh, and a traumatizing world, but we get them, we, we get to see them change what they want and how they desire and what kind of world they desire. And so many of them begin in very comfortable surroundings in suburban homes or you know, with their day-to-day -day lives. And by the end of the series, they've had to construct identities, families, and communities that are often very, very different. Uh, but they're the kinds of identities, families, and communities that will help them survive together in ways that will be more sustainable uh, and allow for greater possibility of living. I think that shift, that change, that learning to desire differently, that what we call in the book, the re-education of desire, to want something different than what we've been told to want, to desire something different than the sort of consumer capitalist desires or greed that we've been inculcated with, that seems to be the most hopeful dimension of some of the series that we've that we've examined. And I think it's one of the most hopeful messages that we can change, we can want, we can desire a different kind of world. And I think that's what I would hope people would take away from our analysis of these shows. Well, you know, uh, thank you so very much. What a wonderful conversation we had today. You know, I want to thank you, you know, Dr. Vent, Dr. Alexander. Thank you so much for your time today. Our pleasure. Yes, thanks so much for inviting us. And folks, we're really just scratching the surface here. We can certainly continue this conversation, but I'm afraid that is all the time uh, we have for today. You'll find the link to Professor Vince and Professor Alexander's book in the comment sections of this video. So let me just remind you uh, the show schedule. We are uh, on Futures Television Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 2 p.m. Pacific, on Radio Futures Daily on 2 p.m. Pacific. And you're going to have a write-up of this conversation, and this show will be embedded 
on the next issue of IMCI magazine, which uh, comes out uh, bi-monthly. So by the way, continue uh, to submit your comments and questions on our YouTube page. You'll make sure to read it and present them to the guests um, if you have any other comments or questions. And again, if you're listening to us via podcast or watching the show as a recording via Futures Television or listening to it on Radio Futures, you too can be part of the conversation. So don't forget to leave your comment and your question. Again, thank you so very much for your presence and participation in the show today. You can always reach out to the magazine or to me, the host, via Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. And I hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Are you looking for a good book? Then let's talk. Books and Authors is the book show on Futures Television. We bring you the best authors on a variety of genres. There are so many great books out there, so where do we start? Leave the digging for us. You can watch Books and Authors every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific.